Good morning. Welcome to uh, Christ Community and the Leeward Campus. I'm Tom Nelson, and uh, we're all so glad you're here. Uh, thank you for being here. I remember the first time I went to camp. Um, I was really excited about camp, but I arrived at camp as a young boy, uh, greeted by an unexpected sickness. I had never experienced homesickness before, yet I felt this churning in the pit of my stomach. I missed home. I missed the people I loved. I missed the sights, the sounds. And yes, after one day at camp, I missed my mom's great cooking. As the week progressed in camp, uh, the fun of all the activities as a young boy, you know, soothed the sadness in my heart for sure. But each night when I tucked my head on my pillow, yes, there was this longing for home that ushered me into my dreams. Now, what I've discovered over the years is that homesickness is just not a camp thing, it's a life thing. That down in the dumps feeling, that longing for home, shadows us all along the way in life. When I went off to college, I remember that sad feeling. I remember really well when Liz and I dropped off our son and our daughter at college the homesickness I felt. Today, that same longing, that same sense of sadness often follows me into a hotel room when I'm away on a work-related trip. It definitely greets me when I say goodbye to a dear friend who's moving away to another city. And it greets me front and center when I say goodbye to someone I love in their death. That homesick feeling I felt at camp as a young boy, I often feel. And yet I find that homesickness is not something we talk a lot about today. But if you're like me, I believe that it's one of the greatest heartaches of the human soul. I felt really hip this week. I don't usually feel hip when... uh, I googled dictionary.com instead of my paper form. So I want you to know. I thought I'd see what Google thought homesickness was and how it was defined. And this is what the world, according to Google, says. It must be true. Define homesickness this way. It's being sad or depressed from a longing for home or family while away from them for a long time. See, homesickness occurs when we are separated from the people we love and the place we belong. The heart of homesickness is a longing for home. But what does this longing really mean? Where does this longing point us to? What home do we really long for? These are the heartfelt questions the ancient Hebrew psalmist addresses in two Psalms we are going to explore today. If you brought a Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to Psalm 42 and 43, which were probably two of the same that were connected in the original days, but now they are two. They were probably one in the original times. But in these two Psalms, we encounter the literary genre, and genre simply means the scaffolding in which literature is presented to us. It's a poetic scaffolding called lament. And in lament, heavy hearts wrestle with evil. They wrestle with injustice. They wrestle with painful circumstances they're facing. 
and lament, aching souls pour their hearts out to God. Martyr German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer resonated deeply with the Psalms in a wonderful work he called the Psalms. He writes, the Psalter gives us ample instruction in how to come before God in a proper way. It bears frequent suffering which this world brings upon us. Serious illness and severe loneliness before God and men, threat, persecution, imprisonment, and whatever conceivable peril there is on earth is known by the Psalms. I want you to notice as we enter this world of lament, this land of lament, that an attentive heart and mind begins to peel back the noisy backdrop of lament and to hear a distinct and deep longing for home. As a church family, we are exploring in this series, through the book of Psalms, an exploration of prayer. The Psalms were the prayer book Jesus used and loved and they serve as a tutorial guide for us. So far in our journey, we have learned several things about prayer from this tutoring book. First, we are to pay attention in prayer. Secondly, that we are to embrace vulnerability in prayer. Third, we are to make prayer a habit. And last Sunday, we explored the component of confession. And this morning, we come to lament. Now, if you have your Bible open, I'd like you to look above Psalm 42, and you'll notice in most Bibles, you'll see an editorial notation that says, Book 2. Now, remember, there are 150 Psalms, and the psalmists were organized around five subcomponents or sections, often called separate books. And each of the five sections of, of these 150 Psalms are closely tied in sequential order to the first five books of the Old Testament. So book one echoes Genesis in Psalms 1 through 41. Beginning with Psalm 42, now we begin to see and hear the echoes of Exodus. Psalm 42 and 43, we begin to hear the distant echoes of Exodus. And let's remember that the book of Exodus is not only about the initial deliverance of God's covenant people from Egypt, it is also about life far from home, far from the land of promise. Exodus captures the human heartache of being in a wilderness with a deep longing for home. And this longing for home finds its way accented in the poetry of Psalm 42 and 43. The literary structure of Psalm 42 and 43 feel like an emotional roller coaster. There is both overwhelming sadness and brief bursts of hope. In Psalm 42 and 43, we uncover two bedrock truths that make a foundation for prayerful lament. And this is how we're going to flow this morning. First, there is a longing for God, a longing for God. And secondly, there is a longing for home. Let's look closely at a longing for God. Now, notice in Psalm 42, verses 1 through 3, how it begins. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Now notice here in verses 1 through 3, the psalmist poetically paints a picture of both a thirsty and sad soul. The primary theme of his poetry is this sense of thirst, this deep longing, and he gives us a picture of what that looks like. It is of a deer pursued by a predator longing to find a body of water to quench, quench its intense thirst after great exertion. That's the idea. 
Now, in our cultural context, remember this was written many, many years ago, thousands of years ago, in a very different arid cultural context, the desert in the Middle East. But in our context, water's no big deal, right? Our whole city has a, a river running through it, right? We're known by water everywhere. We've had a rainy summer. Uh, anytime we want water, we just turn on the tap. But in this cultural context, it was vastly different. In the Middle East, in this time period, and again today, the land was very barren. It was arid desert. And for animals to survive, the very few sources of water were buried deep in the bedrock of the wilderness. That was their lifetime, their oasis of life. I remember in a, uh, living in Israel in a graduate study many years ago, hiking much of uh, the Middle East and particularly Israel, and I remember the intense heat and barren wilderness, particularly in the lowest part of the earth, the Dead Sea. And if you have been in the desert a lot, you know that dehydration is a constant threat and you have to keep drinking water even if you don't feel like it because when you start really feeling thirsty, it's often too late. One of the most amazing places that are, is fixed in my memory that I've ever seen in the Middle East is a place in Hebrew called Engedi, means the place of the wild goat or the spring of the wild goats. In a deep valley surrounded by desert, you walk around the cliff and right in front of you is this artesian waterfall that comes pouring out of the rock in massive quantities. Surrounded, as you imagine, by a virtuous or virtual lifeless desert, all of a sudden there is this pocket of lush and refreshing life. It's an oasis of life. And Getty is rightly named throughout history because it is here where the wildlife of the desert gather and drink deeply. It was their lifeline. Now, maybe you've not seen a deer panting for water. I don't know, maybe you have, but you certainly, if you're a dog lover, hope you're some dog lovers, you know what it's like when a dog is really thirsty. You've, dog, you've taken your dog on a hot summer day for a walk, you know, and they just get after the water, right? They just lap up the water. There's intense thirst here. It's life and death. And that's the picture, the poetic picture the psalmist gives of us that echoes our soul. There's nothing casual about this need. There is intense longing. This comparison, the psalmist describes his intense life and death longing for God, to sense God's presence with him, to know God deeply, a more exacting translation of the Hebrew text. Here in the end of verse 2, instead of when I appear before God, is literally, when shall I come and see or touch the face of God himself? We hear this language in other psalms, one is Psalm 63, which is an antiphonal refrain of Psalm 42 and 43. It's very similar. It captures the sense of our longing for the refreshing presence of God. Oh God, you are my God, the psalmist says in 63.1. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is not some water, a little water, there is no water. Now what is explicitly added in Psalm 42 that is not in 63 is the expressed physiological effects. The sadness of heart leads to the flood of tears. In the psalmist's thirsty and sad heart, you'll notice in Psalm 42, if you're following along in the text, it is taunted by his external oppressors, but the poetry has nuances that the tormenting doubts are not only external but internal because they bombard him in the night with the question. His tears ask him the same question his oppressors do, where is your God anyway? Where is your God anyway? 
The psalmist longs for his good shepherd to lead him, to guide him, to restore him, to lead him by still waters. He longs to feel God's comforting presence, but God seems to be nowhere to be found. It seems as if God has gone AWOL on him and left him high and dry. It may, came, may have come as a shock to you and to many in the world to learn that after Mother Teresa died, that she lived much of her faith life in the torment of doubt and struggling with God's distance. After she died, her laments, many of them published in letters in her journal, were, were exposed to the world. And in one particular writing, a published letter, she describes her soul as like a husband who was indifferent to her, neglected her. For instance, she writes these words, in my heart, there is no faith. I want God with all the powers of my soul, and yet between us there is terrible separation. This is where the psalmist is at. We hear the similar aching, pulsing heart as he struggles with God's seeming absence. He repeatedly tries to breathe hope back into his heart. And three times, Psalm 42 and 43 are all connected around an exacting refrain repeated three times. Verse 5 of chapter 42, verse 11 of 42, and verse 5 of chapter 43. Here is the refrain. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in torment or turmoil within me? Come on, hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Don't you love the raw honesty here? The transparency? Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of this lament refrain, says it beautifully. He says, why are you down in the dumps? <laughs> Dear soul, why are you crying the blues? Now, I don't know where you are this morning in your faith journey. Perhaps you're not a Christian yet. Perhaps you're a Christian and struggling deeply with doubt. Perhaps a lot of doubts about God, about whether you can know Him and His distance in your life or His tender intimacy. And one of the things that holds you back, maybe holding you back this morning, is that you think faith and doubt are mutually exclusive realities. But let me challenge you to reconsider your thinking. The Psalms of Lament remind us of something very important, that faith and doubt are often complementary companions on the path to greater intimacy with God. See, the Christian faith, and hear me carefully, is not as much about finding intellectual certainty or even personal happiness as it is about finding your way home. Here in the first verses of Psalm 42, we encounter this thirsty and deep longing soul who pours itself out to God. The psalmist keeps saying in a tiffinal refrain, poetically, come on, soul, have hope, come on, soul, God, show up, God, show up, please, satisfy my intense longing, come on, God. He's trying to feel the hope, but he's not feeling much of it. His soul is down deep. He feels God's absence, and so the psalmist now makes a shift he turns his heart toward home. And you'll notice as an astute listener and observer of the text from verse 4 of 42 to all the end of 43, 
The primary poetic theme moves from a longing of God's presence for a longing for home. Home is that place where God's presence is sure to be found and experienced. As the psalmist expresses his longing for home now, notice the progression, the poetic progression of lament. Lament follows this threefold progression. First, he'll remember what was, then he will question what is, and third, he will look to what will be. Lament remembers what is, questions what, remembers what was, questions what is, and looks to what will be. In verses 46, or 4 through 6 of Psalm 42, the psalmist now looks to the past and remember what, what, remembers what was. He says this, notice, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng, that means the crowd, and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. See, the psalmist looks back to a time. He is in a far distant land. The language is Mount Hermon and Mizar and Jordan, far, far away from Jerusalem. Mount Hermon is way to the north, near Syria. Jordan is way to the east. He's far away from home. He is in a distant land, but he remembers being at home, leading the worshipers to the temple on three festival days of the Jewish year. We might think about the loneliness that's accented. You experience that perhaps, the loss of a loved one at Christmas or Thanksgiving, a special time filled with memories when you're away from them or they are gone. He is deeply lonely. He's agonizing, especially on these festival days like you would at Christmas if you weren't home. Yet he remembers the joyful memories of the past. But he also expresses the pain that greets him in that memory, the loss he is feeling. He describes his soul as being cast down, literally over and over again. You might say it this way, I'm at rock bottom in the heavy, dark sadness of the quicksand of hopelessness. That's where he is. Now, we've all experienced, haven't we, the pleasure and pain of remembering memories? Maybe it was watching old family movies. We do that as a family, and my kids just abuse me what I was wearing and what I look like and my mustache and my hair, Right? Maybe you've done that, but there are memories you look back in family movies, or maybe you pull out a picture album, and you slowly turn the pages, and on those pages, both joy and sadness greet you. Several rooms of our home, we have family pictures lining the walls and filling the shelves. These are snapshots in time of special moments that we cherish. Moments of wide, toothy smiles. Moments of warm togetherness. Birthdays. Weddings. Vacation days. Family reunions, or again, we call them family rebellions, where I come from. <laughs> On our shelves, as I walk by them every day, are also several pictures of loved ones who have died and who I miss desperately. Maybe it's my life stage now. The house is quieter than it used to be. The, laughter's, the laughter comes from the walls rather than from pitter-patter feet. I find myself walking more by these gallery of pictures and there's an amplified volume, not only of the precious joy of the past, but the sadness of the present separation from the loved ones 
that I cherish. This is where the psalmist is emotionally in this psalm. As he pens his prayer of lament, he is far away from home, from those he loved. And the psalmist, in the most brilliant Hebrew poetry, walks through a picture album of memories in his mind. And he invites us to look over his shoulder and feel the sadness of his separation and the aloneness he feels that weighs so heavy on his heart. He tries to breathe some hope in his heart, which we see in verse 8. But then immediately, and very intentionally in the poetry, the hurtful reality of his present circumstances smother any flicker of hope he felt. He cries out to God, questioning what he's facing, the difficulty of his present situation, because lament not only remembers what was, lament questions what is. Lament often asks the most heart-wrenching questions of why. Why, God? You will notice that the psalmist is wrestling with the apparent indifference and silence of God in his present plight. It is as if he's saying, God, why are you not there for me? And he's also saying implied in the poetry, why, God, are you not there for you? Come on. Do you see the justice and evil in your adversaries? They're getting the upper hand, God. What are you doing? The psalmist reminds God there are oppressive people all around him. They're taunting him and making his life miserable. They're saying, oh, where, where is this God of yours? And notice in verse 9 of 42, in verse 2 of 43, the psalmist raises two implied questions and he only changes one verb. First, he says, God, have you forgotten me? The implied is, why have you forgotten me? And the second, notice the shift. And God, why have you rejected me? Aren't those the questions we all wrestle with in our journey of faith at some point or another? Maybe that's right where you are this morning with God. Perhaps you're feeling lonely and abandoned by God. Maybe you're feeling fearful as you're facing very difficult present circumstances in your life, your health, your job, your marriage, a class at school. So let me ask you a question. What heart-aching why questions are you asking God this morning? What in your life is causing hopefulness in your heart a road away. Can I encourage you to turn to God in these moments and not turn from Him? See, God can handle your why questions. He can handle it because He's handled a lot of mine. What He doesn't want is for you to turn your back on Him in bitter unbelief. One of the dangers for all of us is that as we're going through hard times in our life, when we're struggling in a relationship with others or our God, our tendency is to do what? To pull back, to isolate ourselves from others, particularly our local church community. But this is absolutely perilous. We're in the midst of a spiritual community, a local church community, where prayerful lament. Where prayerful lament now finds its power and healing and hopeful energy. Lament is not merely a solitary enterprise. It is the currency of spiritual community. Let's remember that Psalm 42 through 43, it's not just an individual person lamenting it is, but it was used through 
God's covenant people's history for millennia as a corporate lament and worship. This was a vital part. And in Psalm 42 to 43, whether the Psalms were from an echoing of Exodus, the wilderness, or exile in Babylon, God's covenant people were homesick for home. Clearly in Psalm 42 and 43, you feel, don't you, the present circumstances that are overwhelming the psalmist. And the psalmist is far away from home, from Jerusalem. See, while we tend to think in our corporate context that songs and praise are important, and they are, and we should sing them with joy and hope, we also need to think as a faith community of the importance of including in our corporate liturgies regular prayers and songs of lament. The emotional and spiritual healing that lament brings us within community is one of the main reasons why the writer of Hebrews urges us never to forsake our assembling together in a local church. Now notice with me how the psalmist laments longing for home. He laments by remembering the past. He questions what is in the present, but notice how the poem ends. The focus moves to what will be in the future, to what will be. Psalm 43 builds in a poetic crescendo, and through the eyes of faith, you see it. The psalmist looks to the future, and a ray of hope begins to emerge and flicker in his homesick heart. Look at verses 3 through 4 of 43. He says, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me, notice, location to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. I will praise you with the lyre. Oh, God, my God. For those of you who love the beauty and symmetry of poetry, notice the progression, not only of the words, but the flow of the poetry. Poetically, notice how the psalmist has moved in lament first from the faraway distant land of Mount Hermon to now leading God's people in the Jerusalem temple. In this prayer of lament, we feel a movement. We are moving ever closer to God's manifest presence to the very altar of God. And while the circumstances of the psalmist have not changed, he still is far from God, he feels, and he still knows he's a long way from home. The light of hope begins to build in his heart and he gets a foretaste of what is to come. He looks to a future home that he ultimately longs for. No one has said this better, I don't think, in English literature at least than C.S. Lewis, our great Oxford professor, once atheist turned Christian, captures laments longing of the heart for home. Lewis describes all of our longing for this far off country, and he writes these words of our desires it says, for they are not the thing itself, they are only what? The scent of a flower we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not heard. The news from a country we have never yet visited. See, in the wilderness of lament, we smell. The smell of the scent of a flower we have not yet found. We hear the echo of a tune we have not yet heard. And we do see a glimpse, a faint glimpse of a country we have not yet visited. Prayerful lament is the homesick language of the land between. The land between where we are now, the arid, parched land of the Exodus desert, and the future promised land where we are heading. In prayerful lament, 
our hearts turn toward home. So how do we begin to bring prayerful lament into our prayer life? Let me suggest three reminders I'd like you to write down and think with me this week as I have thought to continue to weave this into my prayer life. First, practice being honest with God. Practice. In any growing intimate relationship, you know that honesty and transparency are needed. And that takes vulnerability and intentionality. Let me tell you, God can handle your raw honesty. He invites it. Lament is not sanitized religious speech. You don't have to tidy up your prayers. There is no person in the universe you can be more honest than God himself. Honest with your doubts, friends, your disappointments, your fears, your feelings of loss, your grief, your shame, your loneliness, your perplexities, your confusions, your heartaches, and your bewilderments. As we practice raw and unvarnished honesty with God in prayer, let's also remember that lament is not the same as complaint. Some of the great prayer complainers are poor prayer lamenters. So what's the difference between lamenting and complaining? Let me suggest three diagnostic questions that I think will help all of us navigate this tension. How do I know if I'm lamenting and how do I know if I'm complaining? First question. I am talking, if I am, I am talking to God, first, am I, am, am I talking to God? Sorry about that. Am I talking to God or talking about God? Am I talking to God or am I talking about God? See, in lament, we talk honestly and directly to God. And when we complain, we badmouth God. Second question. Secondly, am I wrestling with God or blaming God? Am I wrestling with God or blaming God? See, in lament, we ask tough questions of God, no doubt. And when we complain, we blame Him. Third, Am I pouring out my soul to God or am I grumbling to others? See, in lament, we cry out to God and when we complain, it spills out to others. Remember, lament is not just random complaint. It's not just dissatisfaction with our life. It's not just bemoaning, bemoaning our circumstances or our disappointment with others. It is first and foremost a longing for home, for life as God originally designed it to be. For what it will be one day, yet future, we long. Prayerful lament grows with practice. So I'm going to encourage you to use the prayers of lament, like Psalm 42 and 43, as a template of practicing lament. Second reminder is this. Expect faith and doubt to join you on the journey. Prayerful lament deepens our faith. It kindles our hope, yes, but it raises tons of questions of doubt as we struggle with our broken lives and our broken world. One biblical scholar captures the mysterious efficacy of lament beautifully when he says, faith and doubt are twins. And when doubt seemed to triumph, true faith claimed its questions. Faith answered. Faith despairs. And despair hopes. Blues are rightly described as the contemporary music of lament. The summer one of the great legends of blues, B.B. King died at 89 years of age. Amazing. B.B. King was referred to as the king of the blues for good reason. His accomplishments are legendary. One of the things I love most is his greatest lyrical line, in my opinion, was a question. How do we keep singing the blues in a minor key? Lament is prayerful faith in a minor key of doubt. Third reminder, 
Hope for home, not happiness. Prayerful lament helps us keep our true north compass setting, not on our desire for happiness, but our deepest desire, which is a longing for home. It has often been said that the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. But what is not said that needs to be said is that the Christian life is not only a long obedience in the same direction, it is a long longing in the same direction on our journey home. Our deepest heart desires, friends, are not for happiness, but for home. Was there anyone who ever graced this planet that must have longed for home more than Jesus? Anyone who experienced the heartbreaking reality of homesickness more than Jesus? Yet Jesus came to this broken world. He made his way to the cross. He laid down his life as an atoning sacrifice for you and me that we might be forgiven and given new life and new hope and that we might find our way home again. As Jesus was nailed to the cross, he didn't offer up a prayer of praise. He offered up a prayer of lament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Don't miss this. Jesus' prayerful lament was not a complaint. It was not a cry to be released from his horrific suffering. It was a cry of unimaginable homesickness, a heart bursting with longing for home. The heart of the Christian faith is God lamenting from the cross. You must not miss that the night before Jesus' crucifixion, what did Jesus do? He gathered his disciples around him and he spoke not of happiness, but he spoke of home. He said, I go to prepare what? A place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. In many ways, the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the first book to the end, is simply this storyline. It is our long journey home. We are given a hopeful glimpse of that. In the last book of the Bible, in Revelation 21, John looks and sees the vision of the beauty of the person and the place our heart longs for. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. He who sat on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The greatest longing of your heart and mine is not for happiness, it's for home. Let's pray. Father, we feel the homesickness of our souls. We feel a longing for home. But it can be well with our souls because we are on our way home. Amen.